James chapter 5. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the higher the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receives the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, in your nay, nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you have them open. And if you don't have a Bible, hopefully you can look off someone who does have a Bible and that uh, we'll be clued in to what God's Word has to share with us this morning. I'd like to begin with a story. And you know, we all like stories. But some of the best stories are the ones that are true. Some, in fact, that are found right here in God's Word. And so as a segue, as a launch pad into the text this morning, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Second Chronicles. So if you would turn to 2 Chronicles, and you can follow. I'm going to read bits and pieces of this just as an entry point into our text this morning. The people of Moab and the people of Ammon and Mount Seir. Word comes to King Jehoshaphat. 
that they are up against an army, a great multitude, in fact. Messengers come in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 in verse 2 and tell Jehoshaphat that a great multitude's coming against you from beyond the sea. And notice Jehoshaphat's response in verse 3. He feared. But look immediately what he does. He set himself to seek the Lord. That's, by the way, that's good counsel. That's, that's good instruction for us. Okay? He was seeking the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And all the cities of Judah, they came. What did they come to do? Seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat then stands before the assembly of Judah and all the cities of Jerusalem. And he prays this prayer beginning in verse 6. He says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, this is a key part of his prayer. In your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name. And he goes on, he keeps praying, and he gets to the end in verse 12. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. What a great prayer. What a great spirit we see behind King Jehoshaphat. Because you know many kings of the day were very determined. They were going to make this happen. We don't see that same spirit here in Jehoshaphat. After he gets done praying... The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel, verse 14, son of Asaph, one of the Levites. Listen to what he says, verse 15. Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. You will surely come up by the ascent. They'll come by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Oh, what a comfort that would have been. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. What was Jehoshaphat's response, church? The text says, worship. That was his response. We see in verse 20, the next morning they, they get up and they're going out to take their places. Jehoshaphat in verse 20 says, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen to these words. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Oh, there are many lessons here we can learn from King Jehoshaphat. See, when the news originally came to the ears of Jehoshaphat, fear set in. He knew that the army coming against him was larger than his own, and the situation looked hopeless. That is, until he sought out God. The Lord served as Jehoshaphat's sure defense and rescued the people of Judah from the hands of the enemy. You know, church, as you turn now to the book of James... I want you to see that the same God who defended and fought for Jehoshaphat 
and the nation of Judah. It's the same God who will serve as your sure rock of defense. This morning, as we look at James chapter 5, the first 12 verses, I'd like to give you the big idea right up front. Though trials may threaten, this whole book of James has been set in the context of trials we go through. Though trials may threaten, patiently endure, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that God is your sure defense. That's the big idea of the text this morning. The text today is broken down into two parts. It begins with an address to the rich, those who are rich in this present world. A sharp rebuke, in fact, to the rich, toward those who had been oppressing the poor laborers, many of whom were Christians in this scattered church to whom James is writing. And you might think the first part of this text, the first six verses, is a little bit depressing. But it's not. In fact, it's cause for rejoicing, as we'll see. In the second part, 7 through 12, it's going to directly address the believers in the church. It's a call to action in light of the oppression taking place. It's, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a big, loud trumpet sound to alert the believer of who's in charge here. And also, what's expected in light of who's in charge. Before we dive in and work through the text, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, in the words of Moses, I ask that you would give ear, oh, heavens, as I speak. Pray that the earth would hear the words that I speak this morning. For I endeavor to proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribing greatness to you, God. You are the rock and your work is perfect. All your ways are justice. You are the God of truth. Righteous and upright you are. Your people dwell in the midst of a nation void of ungodly counsel. So, Father, we ask that you would uphold us by your mighty hand. We need you. We declare our need for you this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep in us. Grant us grace to walk in obedience to the truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. What trials are threatening the church as you open up to James chapter 5? There are three pieces of information here I want to give you. Three, okay? First of all, and there are questions to ask of the text. To whom is James speaking? We see the answer right there in verse 1. The rich. The rich. Are these rich folks, are they believers? I tend to think not according to context, but some have tended to believe that these folks were what we might call fringe folks. They were folks who maybe at one time were a part of the church and they have drifted. Okay? Whatever the case may be, these folks are rich in the, in the eyes of the world. They have a lot of stuff. We see that James at the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he seems to be addressing Christian business folks, Christian merchants, traders who were intending to go to a particular city and spend some time there and do business and make a profit. And it was a call for them to take God into account for their business plans, to stop operating apart from God in their work, to stop professing Christ on one hand and living like you have no allegiance to him on the other hand. 
James calls his audience there at the end of chapter 4 to look in the mirror and to realize that boasting in arrogance is what the world does. Crafting business plans apart from asking of the Lord, this is what the world does. And the one who is a friend of the world, we found out in James chapter 4, verse 4, is an enemy of God. And you might be thinking, why would James address these first six verses of chapter 5 to the rich in the world? Would they have heard this exhortation? You may be thinking back to context. I hope you are, and this is good. I, I thought James was writing this to the church that had been scattered. These are great questions, and these are good to always keep in mind. Perhaps James addresses the wicked, rich in the world, knowing good and well that many of them perhaps would not hear these words specifically. My question, though, is would there be another purpose as to why he might address the rich in the world, knowing the church would be the ones hearing it? Think about the purpose for that. And I believe there is a reason. I believe verses 2 through 6 would be an encouragement to the believers. How so? Knowing that God has heard and seen their oppression. God is aware of their situation. How comforting for those believers to know that. Second question. What's he calling them to do? Who's it addressed to? The rich. What's he calling them to do? Weep and howl. And you know, when you read that, some of you might just be scratching your head, might be trying to figure that out. Weep and howl. That's kind of an odd expression. Weep has in mind to wailing, this idea of wailing that took place when someone died. We also see in chapter 4, weeping comes on the heels of godly sorrow leading to repentance, does it not? The idea of howling that is coupled with weeping here describes the sound a person would make when he's suffering extraordinary pain or grief. Weep and howl. The rich are called to weep and howl. How many rich people today do you know are weeping and howling? Know any of them? I haven't seen too many of them. Most of the rich people that I know and, and see today are, seem to be enjoying themselves. Seem to be taking full advantage of the opportunity that they have. All the money. The call doesn't seem to fit their present wealth status. So why weep and howl? And that leads to the third question. What's behind the call? The call is to weep and howl. What's behind that call? The text says, for your miseries that are coming upon you. What are these miseries? It describes these overwhelming hardships, troubles, sufferings, distress. These miseries, the text says, are coming upon you. They're yet to come. And James speaks of them as though they have already happened. It's going to happen. There's a certainty attached to what James is saying right here in the text. So he says, in essence, go on and practice weeping and howling, you wicked, rich people. Because suffering and distress... Is coming. Judgment is coming to these people. Why? I believe the text gives us a look and see into that why. And I'd like to just give us a cursory look, if we could, at verses 2 through 6, at what was going on. There are several things the text tells us was going on, things that were happening, that paint a picture here for us. 
So let's just go through the list. First of all, your riches are corrupted. They have rotted. They're going to waste away. All that stuff. Secondly, your garments are moth-eaten. Now, garments in the day were a sign of wealth. Okay? And these garments are going to be moth-eaten. The rich are going to have garments with holes in them. You know, Matthew 5.19 is immediately a reminder there. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where what? Moth and rust destroy. Where thieves break in and steal. Moth-eaten garments were often not found among the poor. Why? For they oftentimes wore the only garment they had. You know, it got me thinking a lot about how many garments do we have packed, crammed, tied inside our closets today? Man, how many shirts do we have? Ladies, how many dresses? How many pairs of shoes do we have? Text calls me to ask some these questions. We've got a lot more stuff than what we need, don't we? A reminder is good here. If you are in Christ, you are, remember, a, a sojourner traveling by, awaiting your heavenly home. Third, text says your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That stuff that you thought was going to last forever, that stuff that you just put all of your marbles in that basket, that gold and silver, that stuff that never is going to perish. James says it corroded. Can't take it with you. It's wasting away. Your riches have you And because they have you, you will follow them to their end. What happens in the end? I think the proper writer gets this. It'd be good good wisdom for us to just put in our pocket and keep a hold of. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves what? Wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. That's where they go. Fourth, you've heaped up treasure in the last days. The end of verse 3. The last days constitute the time between Jesus' first arrival and his second coming. We sit in these last days. So the rich have heaped up treasure. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not against laying up treasure. But he is against laying up treasure here on earth, is he not? The rich were absorbed in heaping up treasure of all Kinds And church, I believe it's instructive for us not to fall into the same model of heaping up treasure while you eagerly wait for the Savior. Cannot serve two masters, right? Number five, you've kept back the wages of your laborers. Verse four, notice, I want you to notice that the wages, it says, it says the wages cry out. The ones who mowed their fields, they were cheated of their income. Leviticus 19, 13 says, You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who was hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. We see also in Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has his heart set on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and be sinned to you. 
You see the rich, according to the text here in James 5, they are defrauding their, their laborers. They have the money to pay them, but they're refusing to do so. God does not, church, take this lightly. The cries, number six, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Lord of Sabaoth, the title. Hebrew title for Lord of hosts. Which is this image. I love this image. This image of God. Jesus leading an army in defense of his people. God leading an army in defense of his people. I'm reminded of that stanza in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Church, this morning I pray that, according to the text, that one aspect that you would see about God this morning, He is your defender, He is your refuge, He is your rock. How often do we read in the scriptures, and we read up front, uh, one, one of many situations where God shows up on behalf of His people? This is the kind of God we serve, church. Though trials may threaten, you can patiently endure, church, because you have the Lord of Sabaoth on your side, the Lord of hosts, the one who leads an army in defense of his people. Take comfort in that through the trials that you find yourself in. Number seven, the text says that you have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. Verse five, indulgence. Luke 16, verse 19, describes a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. You remember that man? Fine linen. And he fared sumptuously every day. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see that Jesus teaches that those who are living in luxury and self-indulgence, thinking all about themselves, you have your reward in full. Or we might also be reminded of Luke's gospel, chapter 12, when Jesus is sharing the parable And he says, your soul will be required of you, the one who is going to build bigger barns. Remember that? Then whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Number eight, the text says, you have fatted your hearts as in a day of slaughter. One writer says that fattening one's heart may simply refer to the inward desire for riches. But heart at times could refer to a person's midsection more generally, so the expression may mean much the same as fattening one's stomach. I want you to consider the phrase, the day of slaughter, in reference to the animal and the sacrifice. After fattening up that animal, preparing them for what's to come. And here we have in the text a picture of judgment. See, the rich have been fattening themselves up. And yet, in doing so, they await a day of judgment. That's what James is pointing them toward. There is a day of slaughter, so to speak, when God is going to justly judge. 
Number nine, you have condemned. Verse six. You have seen fit, in other words. This is a uh, court of law term. You've seen fit. The rich have seen fit to take to court the poor and the lowly, knowing, knowing that they don't have the money, they don't have the power to do anything about it. And so the rich are taking them to court and they're going to extract whatever they can out of them. Number 10, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, whether here in the text they actually murdered them or whether this is figurative language by simply withholding the wages of the laborers, think how they would have kept them from living. These poor laborers depended upon their wage every day. This poor laborer has in himself nothing that can surpass the rich, his power, his authority, his wealth, his influence. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the picture that James is painting about the rich and their oppression over these poor laborers, many of whom consisted of the church to whom James is writing? Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. You see, the sentencing for their miseries has been read. And many of you, as they were being read, many of you perhaps feel safe. Many of you, as I read the list, think that the rich is someone who has more money than you do. Someone who has a whole lot more than you, perhaps. Do you realize that that this list, this same list, can serve as a blanket for your own affections if you're not careful? Riches, Clothing, heaping up treasures, cheating to get ahead, dishonest business practice, self-absorbed living, catering to self, using your money as leverage to gain influence. Church, we need to be aware of these temptations. I believe Paul, writing to Timothy, puts forward this very caution. Timothy 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Oh, that's a wonderful verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Though trials may threaten, church trials are going to come. How would the Lord have his child respond to trials that come? I believe the text tells us, patiently endure. Though trials may threaten, patiently endure, knowing that God is your sure defense. So, miseries are coming upon the rich. But the Lord of Sabaoth has heard the cries of his children. Amen. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He watches over the ways of the righteous. He will defend his people and surround them from this this time forth and forevermore, the psalmist says. That's such good news. Such a comfort. 
You may not be in the midst of a trial whereby the rich are oppressing you, weighing you down, lording it over you. But your trials can come through various oppressive means. Psalm 54, verses 3, and the first part of verse 4. Listen to what the psalmist says. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. See, the oppressors for the psalmist, these oppressors were seeking his life. These people had not set God before them. And you're here today. Perhaps it's not a person who's seeking your life. Oppression, by definition, is domination, or, or maybe it's this heavy weight, this uh, harassment, cruelty, persecution, tyranny. Those are substitute words. And I imagine in a, in a gathering this size, there might be something oppressing you. Perhaps some fear. Perhaps an argument with someone in your home that's weighing on you. A friendship that's broken, in need of repair. The nagging thought that you are just not a, not a good enough parent. Just weighing on you. It's dominating your thoughts. Desires that are unhealthy and ungodly. Perhaps you've had those desires, those thoughts. You haven't acted on them yet, but they are dominating your thoughts. They're there in your thoughts all the time. The thought that you're just not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not tall enough. You're not strong enough. The remembrance of harsh words that were spoken. The need to repent. Perhaps this morning, this oppressing thought is your life has been one big facade. It's been one big fake and it weighs on you to return to God. You haven't done that this morning, but it's been weighing on you this morning. Do you see, church? It's not just people who may oppress you. Whether you are oppressed by the rich or oppressed through some other avenue, the text provides Hope, the text points first to the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the one whose armies are always available and at your defense. But it also points to your responsibility being in Christ. Look at verse 7. Therefore, therefore, in light of the trials oppressing you, therefore, brethren, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Look to the Lord of Sabaoth first. He's your defender, but be patient meanwhile. One writer says that this verb, this be patient, contains two nuances. Like James's more common verb, endure. This term causes listeners to wait and not become overly zealous, turning to violence to further the cause of Christ in the face of oppression. But be patient is not as passive as endure, for it also calls the believers under affliction to persevere and not give up. Despite the persecution, they must wait faithfully and patiently, realizing that the Lord of vast armies does hear them and he sees their suffering. And so 
the word here is to wait on the Lord, but persevere in light of persecution. How long though? The text says until the coming of the Lord. The writer says the only perfect comfort that people can find in the midst of injustice is the realization that God will bring complete justice in his time. Amen? He'll bring complete justice. And so the appearing then of Jesus brings comfort to the believers. James provides then an example in verse 7 of the kind of patience that he's speaking to. He says, see how the farmer waits. What's he wait for? The precious fruit. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now think about this. The farmer doesn't just collect his produce from the fields. That precious fruit is described here in the text. And for many farmers, this was and still is today, but especially so then, their main vocation. In anticipation of that precious fruit, the farmer has to wait patiently. And church, there's some time that passes between planting the seeds and harvesting the crops. Does the farmer just sit back and and sip coffee all his days after the seeds have been planted? Does he just wait in the sense of counting his days until his corn's ready to be harvested? No, you see, while he's waiting patiently, he is also actively at work doing what he can to maximize his precious fruit. He's fertilizing, he's taking care of weeds, he's finding ways to water if necessary, he's repelling any visitors that might have the ideas of destroying his crops. He's tending to the care of his fields. And at the same time, patient upon God to bring about the fruit. You see, there's a certain sense of dependency every farmer has, for he needs rain. He needs God to grow the seeds that have been planted in the ground. The farmer is a worker, but his fruit is sown through patient endurance. And just as the farmer is patient, looking forward to the harvest, James says again in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish or strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. In other words, the Lord of the harvest is near. Though trials threaten. Patiently endure. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice James 5, 7 instructs us how long to be patient. Until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8 says, not long now, it's at hand. One writer said that our view of eternity will affect how we live today. I believe that's true. Our view of eternity will affect how we live today. Do you realize, church, that one day all oppression is going to be gone? Revelation 21, 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. In the midst of being patient, the text reminds you to guard your tongues. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble or complain against one another. Brethren, lest you be condemned. See, he's just judged in verse 2 through 6, the rich. And now he's saying here, after being patient, establishing your hearts, he says, oh, by the way, in the midst of this being patient, do not grumble against one another, against one another, against the body. 
lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We read about the judge back in chapter 4, verse 12. We've got one lawgiver, one judge, who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? You see, listen to this. You, you multiply the effect of your trial when you begin grumbling against one another in the body. Did you know that? Think about it. Those on the outside may be oppressing you. Why then would you add to the trial by grumbling with another brother or another sister? Not only does that add to your trials, but it shows the world that we can't get along. That's what it shows the world. In fact, it's the very thing Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we would be together. We would be united. We would be as one that the world might see. The converse is true. When we grumble and complain against one another in the body, the world sees that as well. And if the church can't get along, why should the world listen to what we have to say? You see, the word of God then is maligned because of the contentions, because of the grumbling within the body of Christ. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's what the word says, right? That's not where our wrestling match ought to happen. Establish your hearts. Or as the proverb writer says, guard your hearts. 423 of Proverbs. Look at verse 10, James, 4, James 5. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Suffering and patience. Endurance. As you think about the prophets, there are many, no doubt, that could be put on the table here this morning. But, you know, Jeremiah is one. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Malachi, Amos, even thinking about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ himself. They were persecuted. In fact, John lost his head, didn't he? For the words that they spoke on behalf of the Lord. And yet they patiently endured, trusting in the Lord of hosts to take care of them and carry out his good purposes. You see, for many of these prophets... Taking care of them wasn't necessarily preserving their lives. Sometimes we equate God taking care of me with preserving my life. That's not always God's good purpose, church. The word example in verse 10. These prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord... As an example. Has in mind a, a pattern or a, a, a model intended for instruction. And the writer here says, says that this example that James gives is not meant merely for intellectual discussion and pondering. But should be the model for the lives of all the congregants. As the prophets suffered, they still sought the glory of God in what they said and did. Verse 11 continues, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. It's sort of ironic statement there. We count them blessed, but we have little desire to endure ourselves. We can nod our head and go, yeah, we count them blessed that endure, but boy, we sure don't want any of that.
You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You see, Job kept going even in the light of his trials, didn't he? The loss of his cattle, the loss of his children, the loss of his possessions in general. Just lost. And he lost, lost all these things. He even, his own body was afflicted. Remember, he's just sitting down picking away at himself. He's got dust stuff all over him and he's, he's miserable. The end intended by the Lord is seen at the end of Job's story. God is compassionate. He's merciful. And he extends to Job many other things as you read the end of the book of Job. There's a restoration. But I ask, what, what is the end intended by God as you, not Job, but you? What is the end intended by God as you work through your trials of various kinds? I turn your attention back to the beginning of James, chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. Trials produce patience, but let patience have its perfect work. God is doing a work in you that you may be perfect or mature, that you might be complete, lacking nothing. That's the end to which God is working in you as you go through trials. All the more reason that you can know that your God is a sure defense. And he's going to help you through these trials that come. But the call is that you would patiently endure. Look at verse 12, James 5. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by, with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment or hypocrisy or condemnation. Some of your translations may read. When you see these words, Echoed in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. You see on the tail end of it, these words from Jesus. For, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. I believe James would have his church be mindful of speech that would compromise their relationship with the Lord. Because you see, when, when you're being oppressed, I think James's word here is, don't use your tongue to strike a deal that you may not be able to keep. Don't make glamorous promises you can't make good on. Don't be hypocritical with your tongue. Simply let your yes be yes, your no be no. Do not malign your testimony as a child of God with your tongue. Be careful not to be, as James already said in chapter 3, double-tongued. Though trials may threaten, patiently endure knowing that God is your sure defense. Church, this morning, as we look at the text, I would want you to know that God can always be trusted. Always, he can always be trusted. In fact, I'm reminded all the way back in the book of Exodus. You can turn there if you'd like to, in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. This was Moses' burning bush experience. You see, God sees what his people are going through. And I'll begin this in chapter 3, verse 7. He, he identifies who he is there in verse 6. And in verse 7, the Lord says, I have surely seen, what's he seen? The oppression of my people who are in Egypt. 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You see, God's people were in bondage to the Egyptians. And the text says that he heard their cry and came down to rescue them through his prophet Moses. They were being oppressed by Pharaoh and God saw and acknowledged the situation by acting on behalf of his people. You see, oppression was met with rescue. And the only way the Israelites were going to escape the mighty hand of Pharaoh would be through the power of God. And church, he's the only one truly who can take your oppressive situation, whatever it may be this morning, and turn it around. Do you know what the opposite of oppression is? Liberty. Freedom. That's the opposite of oppression. And I was reminded of Jesus standing in the synagogue on one particular day. He's reading Isaiah's prophecy. And you can listen to what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Listen, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You may not be oppressed by those who are rich, but there's not a one of us who is exempt from spiritual oppression. The Bible says we were at all, at one time, we were all spiritually dead. There was a day when you were held captive by sin. You were, as Paul writes in Ephesians, you were a child of disobedience. You were one of the children of wrath. Like the Israelites in Egypt, you were in bondage to your old master. You were, as Paul says in Romans 6, a slave to sin. But praise be to God that he sent his son to set the captives free. He came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. God made us alive. We who once were dead, he made us alive. Amen. That's good news. Though trials may threaten, patiently endure. With your tongue, endure. Your actions, endure. In your thoughts and motives, endure. Patiently endure. Knowing that God is your sure defense. No matter what is weighing you down, no matter what the trial you're facing, the Lord of Sabaoth is sufficient. He sees what you're going through. He hears the cry of those whose hearts are his, those who are broken, contrite, seeking him. Whether you are in Christ this morning and feeling the weight of something that is pulling you down, or maybe you're occupying a chair this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you have no genuine relationship whatsoever with Christ, but you find yourself here this morning in need of help. You need help. 
You might personalize the feelings of Jehoshaphat. I have no power against this great multitude that's coming against me. Nor do I know what to do. Church, that's not necessarily a bad place to find yourself. Powerless, weak, in need of direction. Dependent upon God. Consider carefully the example of Jehoshaphat. But our eyes are upon you. Church, are your eyes upon him? I'd like to turn the big idea around if I could as we, as, as we come to this ending of the text. Knowing that God is your sure defense through Jesus Christ, his son. You can patiently endure any trial that comes your way. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you are our sure defense. You're our rock. You're our defender. You're our refuge, a strong tower that we can run to and be safe. We thank you for the examples in the scriptures. Many times that you showed up on behalf of your people, that you rescued your people. You redeemed them. You set them free. And Father, it is for that reason that you sent your son to set at liberty the captives. Father, thank you this morning for that wonderful plan of salvation. We thank you for being our redeemer, for doing the very thing that we and ourselves could not do. Father, I pray that through our trials that come, Father, we would patiently endure those trials, understanding that you are about a perfect work in us, to mature us, to complete us, that, Father, we can hold on through the trial, understanding and knowing that you are a God who defends, God who sees, and a God who hears our cries. Father, may, may we, by faith, may we trust in you for all things. And no matter what comes, Lord, may we hold on to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.